0: Thank you so much for listening. I'm excited to share this conversation with Isadora Stowe. And I will be slowing down a bit and giving myself some time to wrap up this year and record some more fantastic episodes to share in the new year. I do have one more episode to share this year, which is a longer version of a curated presentation that I shared at the recent California Art Education Association conference. I hope you are also giving yourself grace and making time for whatever you need, whether that's early bedtime, relaxing with some TV, studio time, hikes in nature, or maybe something else. This has been a busy, difficult fall so far, But today is a good day, at least over here it is. My daughter got her first dose of the vaccine. Whew. Okay, on to this episode. Isadora Stowe shared her winding journey teaching in several settings before landing in community college, where she embraces the student-centered approach. She talked about learning on the job, how to connect with students and truly listen to find their unmet needs. It was so helpful hearing about the mindset shift from thinking of behaviors as problematic to thinking of behaviors as expressing something that may be painful and is not being heard. I also loved hearing about Isadora's work and how she pursues her interest in physics through installation in collaboration with scientists. She talked about making a living and making a life as an artist, creating multiple income streams, but also building in time to recharge yourself. Isadora Stowe is a New Mexican-based multimedia artist whose work focuses on the narrative of environment, translated and coded into complex psychological landscapes. Stowe grew up in the Southwest border region, living and working in New Mexico, Texas, and Mexico. She credits these experiences for providing a heightened awareness of geographical and political boundaries and a fascination with the exploration of identity, of self, and the construction of home in her work. Stowe earned her BFA in painting with a double major in cultural anthropology, a minor in Native American studies, and an MFA in painting and drawing. She exhibits her work widely and is represented in many private and public collections across the country and in Mexico. She has been the recipient of several grants, scholarships, and awards for her work, including an Award for Excellence from the New Mexico Committee of the National Museum of Women in the Arts. She is also one of the artists profiled in the book, The Motherhood of Art, published in 2020. She is dedicated to making the world a better place for artists from all points of origin and serves on many local and national committees and on the Board of Directors for the Texas Association of Schools of Art and Border Senses, a nonprofit which promotes arts in the bi-national region. She is also the co-creator of the Professional Art Practice Courses, Wearing All the Hats Without Losing Your Head, presented on the Artist Mother Network. Let's hear from Isadora.
1: I am talking with Isadora Stowe today, and I'm excited to talk with you. I love to really start the conversation as sharing your journey. Could you walk us through how you got to where you are now in in art,
2: in education? What's the path? <laughs> sure. I'm so excited to talk to you and get to talk about teaching, which I love, yes. and art together, which are like two loves. So this is really nice. I was thinking about this a lot. I, I first started teaching Hebrew school, actually. I was asked to take over the rabbi had left at our temple, and so I started teaching. And Hebrew is, was not my first language, so I had learned it from a very early age. So my remembering of how to understand it, you know, it had become so intuitive. So just having to teach it, and I was in high school. So just having to kind of contextualize it and teach it to younger people was so interesting to me because it was like changing my brain. I was like, oh, how do you start from the thing and explain the thing? And <laughs> I I just feel like that's been the catalyst for everything. I'm like, oh, how do you get information to other people in a way that they understand that, that resonates with them, that mm. they can hold on to and they can use it themselves? And then you get to watch them progress That was kind of like the taste, you know, it Mm. started in high school. And then in undergrad, I did a lot of teaching programs. So I, I did a lot of after school programs. And I'm from Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is and still is, unfortunately, the one of the poorest counties in the nation. And we are also one of the worst for education. <laughs> so they had just started with these after-school programs as a way to help working parents. And so it was an after-school arts program. They had received a big grant. My friend had worked on it. And when I say a grant in the '90s, it was like we got crayons and paper. Like so, that, that was big time for us. You know? Like our schools are so poor. Our our area is so poor. So. I had to be really inventive. And after a while of teaching the same thing to kids, I was like, well, what could I do? Like, how can we move our body and make art? And how could we? Mm -hmm. So I just had to get super creative. And I would actually like credit growing up where I did with becoming a better teacher, because you have to figure out, well, how can I use cardboard and some charcoal to make a lesson plan and and make it interesting Mm -hmm. for, for children who have never seen art before and what can they do with it? And so- I just had to get super creative with very minimal supplies. And also it taught me like to ask, I would just go to stores and say, can you give me markers? Like, can I have four sets of markers for 400 children? (laughs) You know, like, I mean, it was, it was real bare bones. So just that taught me a lot. And then, and then when I graduated, I ended up teaching incarcerated youth because the program that I was teaching with At the time, it was called at risk. And it was students who were just in really kind of dire straits and going home, they would go home to empty houses, no food, etc. And growing up, I grew up with a single parent, my mother passed away when I was young, I have two brothers and a sister. So we were not living like a a kind of a normal life either. Resources Mm. were pretty sparse. So I really love teaching that population because I knew it well, and I knew I knew the struggles of what people were going through. And so, incarcerated youth seemed like kind of a natural progression because I had been working at this after-school high school program with students who were kicked out of high school for becoming pregnant or because oh. of truancy, or and sometimes truancy was because they were too embarrassed to wear the same clothes to school every day for two weeks. You know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. and I saw that very quickly because I was younger. And so it seemed like there was a lot of constraints for being punished for being in poverty. And so I just found the arts to be this connective power. I would go into these schools and I would work with people and they would become, they would just open up and brighten up and just relax like it was just a time for people to have this kind of connection and i saw art doing that and so you know i was just hooked it was just so teaching art and making art were, were something that i was doing from a very early age and then i worked for a violence prevention program for a grant that was to help people before they went into the juvenile justice system which is completely corrupt in, in our state <laughs> i mean i can say yes. that out loud now because i i really know the back end of a lot of things that were happening and a lot of things that were going on and still go on with incarceration and who gets incarcerated and, and why and who, mm-hmm. who really benefits from it. So I was working with violence prevention to stop, not to stop, but to help people before they got into school. And one of the things we did was we would take, we the the program at New Mexico State University. So we were taking students on campus and trying to normalize, like after high school, you can go here, you know, this can be your place we can go into museums, that's your space too. And we did a lot of arts programming. And I worked with this director, Dr. Lisa Maupin, who's amazing. She went on to go to some other schools. She's now provost at other schools. And she's, she was an incredible mentor, but she gave me a lot of freedom. And she, she gave me a lot of responsibility and trusted me to come up with a lot of curriculum. And it was just an incredible experience. And then I thought I wanted to go into public policy, but I took one statistics class and I was like, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like not good at this. No, thank you. (laughs) And and I just want to make art. And so I, I went back to school for my graduate program. And then I got to it was a mm-hmm. teaching program. So I got to teach again. But I got to teach college students. And I was like, Oh, my God, there's no behavioral modif- management, basically, like the behavioral management aspect and modification it was so much smaller um, mm-hmm. than what I, I think I was kind of dealing with the kind of extreme end. So I was like, oh, my God, this is like the easiest thing ever. So I loved it. And then when I graduated, I ended up working at UTEP. And eventually I received a full-time offer at a community college. And, and a community college for me was kind of like a bridge of what I had been doing a lot of violence prevention and at risk. and But it was also college. So it was like these two worlds that I love so much together. And it's so student-centered pedagogy versus like university and colleges. So it, it was just a different way to kind of approach students than I had seen it at, at the universities. And I just mm-hmm. fell in love. So that's where I am right now. And I absolutely love it. I love my students. I love getting to teach and bring art to people for the first time. I mean, that's like it. it yeah, it's just it's it's an amazing thing. So that's how I kind of got there. But I talked for a long time. <laughs>
1: But there was so much. I, I love hearing about the variety of yeah. all the different teaching experiences that led you to where you are and having sort of both ends of where you are now, working with yeah. slightly younger students in like really difficult situations and then slightly maybe same age but like university versus community college it's interesting to hear that slight shift like what the differences yeah. are there and just kind of finding finding your spot finding your little yes. what fits for you I feel like that can be really hard
2: I think when you're yeah. teaching too you gotta try so many different things until you figure it out like I didn't I I didn't understand what community colleges did until I taught at one and I was like oh this would have been so helpful for me because I think a lot of the things that I really struggled with in college were things that I just didn't know about, and and you know not having a strong uh, our educational system in New Mexico so bad, so not having a strong uh, understanding of just even how to study, like just hmm. how do you take notes, how do you take a test? Right. I mean, there yes. were just so many basics, and so I think at a community college, we're always instilling like all of these really basic habits in rigor and, and how do you support students in the best way? And then we have all these services and it's so student centered that we're really looking at them and how they're growing individually. Whereas when I taught at a university, it was like sink or swim. Like you come Mm -hmm. to class and you do the thing and you didn't come to office hours or you, you know, and it's not that we baby people in community college, but we're noticing, we're like, Hey, you haven't been here for a week. What's going on? Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, you got this grade on this test. And I saw you were in here in class every week. Like, why? What, what's going on? Let's look at your notes. Let's look at what's happening, mm-hmm. you know, and just having a conversation with people. And I would not do that at a university because it wasn't mm-hmm. part of the culture. And I mean, I remember even being told, like, we're trying to weed people out. So you need to huh. have this very strict uh, attendance policy and you need to be and my grading was like so intense like I look at some of the projects people did it they were winning um awards for student projects at that university because they were working I mean they were gorgeous but they were working so hard and I had so many students crying in my class and like that's yeah. not the educator I want to be that's yeah. not where that's not how I want to focus my energies with people and connect mm-hmm. with people I don't think there's there's a wrong or a right way to do it. It's just that that fits better with my personality is being able to have that kind of human connection and and be in dialogue and relationship with students all throughout the semester and not they're not a number. I know everybody's name. I know all my students and I see them in the hallways and I know that some who struggles with trying to buy the art supplies and I know who's had a parent who just passed away and is taking care of kids, you know? So it's just a different, it's just maybe a more intimate relationship with your students in a way. And -hmm. and then being able to be like, well, here's the four different places that can help you with that. And we have a food bank and this and here's that. Whereas at university, it was kind of like, you're not my responsibility, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in a way, not that it's a fine line too, but I just think there was a different kind of relationship that the administration nurtured at a university versus at my particular community college in, in El Paso.
1: Yeah. And I could even see that like high schools don't have Mm -hmm. all of those resources. So I could see that being very frustrating to be working with students that you personally relate to. You're like, I've had similar struggles. I get it. I care about you, but like, I don't have any resources for you.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's a terrible place to be because I think educators at the heart of it, like we don't do this job because it's easy <laughs> like right we do this job because we care deeply about the education mm-hmm. of young people and we want people to be their best and so I, I've mm-hmm. never met a teacher who's not trying very hard hard to do all those things for people you know mm-hmm. or who doesn't want to so I think that when you're supported by your administration, it's just so much more helpful because you're probably doing it anyways. I I know we're all spending our own money on our students anyways, but it's very helpful when we have that support to be able to do that.
1: Yeah. And I'd love to hear maybe more about, you talked about the violence prevention program that you were working on. I feel like it could be helpful maybe for other educators to hear, like if there's any sort of bits of curricula or lessons, anything that kind of sticks out that could be replicated in other places or useful for educators?
2: Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest things was taking taking in consideration the emotional health of the students, I think, in violence mm-hmm. prevention, because I think especially males, marginalized males can feel very like school is not their place. And it can Mm -hmm. come out as being very reactive and aggressive. And this is true for my, my female students too. But I think that creating a safe environment, like people just want to be heard and respected and they're going to test those boundaries and they're going to be reactive because they don't know what a safe place is. A lot of the times, like Mm -hmm. they don't, They're not coming from a safe place and they and you have to model it and you have to model forgiveness and you have to model emotional intelligence and communication Mm -hmm. and really love like you have to just be looking at people through that lens and and looking at somebody being reactive and aggressive and saying awful things to you as somebody who is in a lot of pain and how yeah. how best can you serve them in a way that would help with that pain and help to model that you are a safe person for them. Mm-hmm. I think that's, once you get that going, no matter what you're doing in the classroom, once you have a respectful place and a safe place for people, everything else is just so much easier. And I think that, and I don't know, because it's been a long time since I've been out of school, but I don't know how much that, that was something I learned on the job. It wasn't something that was ever taught to me. So, and I also, I I recently did a, a year long training for safe zone classrooms and I think that's kind of open to anybody and LGBTQ plus, And it's really about mm-hmm. creating these kinds of spaces where everybody from any kind of marginalized background feels like they're in a safe place. And I felt like I, I can use that, you know, in every single aspect. And one of my favorite things is, so the rainbow coalition did the, were the catalyst, the people who trained us in El Paso. Mm-hmm. And they have this incredible place, but she had this rule and I just love it. And I use it all the time. And it's the vaguest rule. It's, what happens in the classroom stays in the classroom. You know, like you can take out lessons learned, but we all get to be wrong in here. We all get to try things. We all get to fail. We all get to say things and take those things back. But we're going to always assume that everyone's doing the best they can with what they know. And I think that just having that kind of a safe culture and and creating that kind of culture. And it means that you have to be on all the time. It's like, I can't walk into my classroom and be like, oh, this is going to be a, I'm really tired from the night before and I'm just not feeling it. So I'm not going to really say anything when somebody says something. And when this happens, like Mm -hmm. you got to be on it because they see if you're not consistent, they're watching you all the time and you got to make sure Mm -hmm. that you're being respectful And holding everybody accountable, not in a a negative way, but just being like, well, hey, you said that, but you know what? That could be interpreted as, or what did you really mean by that? Are you trying to say Mm -hmm. X, Y, Z? So you're walking people through things like with with the benefit of the doubt. And I think that Mm -hmm. at the beginning, when I was first teaching, I had a lot of behavioral issues and with men, with young men. And I was like, what is that? Is it because I look super young? Is it, you know, what am I doing? And then I just decided one day that that student on that first day, because sometimes you have a first day and you're like, oh, no, this guy's he's going to, oh, no, he's going to be so bad all year. Oh, God, he just doesn't want him. I'm like, that's going to be my best student. And at the end of the year, that's the person at the end of the year who's like, oh, my God, I loved your class, you know, it was so great. And I love him. And, you know, it's just it's playing to people's strengths, too. If you got all, uh, someone who's talking all the time. All right well, what is it that you feel like you're not being able to say? And what do you need to say? And, you know, it's just like it's figuring out what mm. our problems like problems, meaning like I'm saying that in quotes, you know, like the problem student or whatever the Mm -hmm. issue is that's being disruptive. And how do you play to the strength of that person? What's the real need underneath that? And I think once you start recognizing that and empowering people who feel disempowered in a lot of ways, everything else just kind of falls into place. And then it's just your curriculum. It's just like, how do I want to have fun and learn this objective? all right, I'd like to do this. And let me ask them too, like if I'm stuck on things, I do a lot of anonymous assessments too. So it's a lot mm-hmm. of like, how are we doing? How was that project? You know, what did you feel about that project? Where was the muddy areas? What parts did you just not understand? And I do that in the middle mm-hmm. of a project and then after, and then I, I do like a wish list. Like if we could do anything in this class, what would that look like? And they'll put that in anonymously. And I'll look at Mm. that and then we'll talk about it and then we'll vote on it and we'll come up as a class, like what that project would be. And I, I only do that once because it's very hard to do that in a semester, like all your projects, Mm. I do that as our final project. Like what would be interesting to you guys and how could you do more research Mm. outside and like, how would that look? And then they're bringing their new ideas to me. I mean, you know, so it's amazing. Yeah.
1: So
2: I think it's just getting them involved too, but really you got to have a place where people feel safe or nothing good is going to happen in that room. So I think that's for violence prevention, for people who are are, are really hurting and don't have those skill sets. It's modeling Mm skill sets and learning those skill sets. There's a fantastic book called Nonviolent Communication. I think his name is Mark Rosenberg who wrote it. And there's actually the Nonviolent Communication Seminar in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico. I didn't know that when I read the book. I was like, ah, I'm going to go someday. But that book was amazing. I read it five times because... This is somebody who he worked with the Arab and Palestinian conflicts with Israel, and he did a lot of different, he had conversations with people. And the way he addresses people with so much love through this lens of like, how do we how do we come to a resolution for people who are diametrically Mm -hmm. opposed on these things? So it's extremely interesting. And if you can do that, like we can do it in our classroom, you know, like, it was was super inspiring. I thought just, just about how do you have conversations with people where they can feel heard and it's respectful and everybody, you know, I I hate that win-win, but you know, everybody feels like that they're walking away positively and that they were heard. Mm -hmm. Not in, It's easy to say that, but that's a hard thing to practice and and do consistently in the classroom. So I'm Mm -hmm. constantly trying to learn about that. Like, how do I make that better for my students?
1: Yeah. And it sounds like it's also like there's a mindset shift there for the teacher. I love, you know, what you said about. I feel like almost probably every teacher can relate to that walking in on the first day and there's students that stand out, whether, you know, good reasons or bad reasons, but the students that you're like, ooh, this one's like Mm -hmm. disrupting. And just a little mindset shift of, well, what need is unmet there? Yeah. How can I engage this person where they are and connect with them? What do I need to do to do that? Rather than sort of I don't know, marking them as like, okay, that's the one to watch.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah. And they become yeah, your huge. best teacher. It's like, you know, in Buddhism, it's like, you know, who's your your holiest teacher is your biggest enemy. You know, it's like, uh, like the person who has they have the most to teach you. Those are my mm-hmm. students who have taught me so much. Yeah, maybe this is a very too structured of a room, you know, like maybe this is, mm-hmm. you know, they, they had good points. And so I just feel like we get so much out of that, too, if we're if we're really listening, if yeah. we're going to be open to listening to it. Sometimes you just can't. You got other things you got going on, but like, you know.
1: Yeah. And you're right that that can be so hard. And I love that you just said that, that, you know, there's so many other things going on because (laughs) I know you also have a lot of other things going on, other amazing courses that you're teaching. You have incredible art career. And I mean, I would love to get into all of that as well. Maybe if you could, talk about some of the other ways that you're teaching and reaching people outside of the work at the community college.
2: Yeah, I would love to. Oh, God, it's such a passion. (laughs) So, Kaylin Butine, who is from the Artist Mother Podcast and the Artist Mother Podcast Network and critique groups, she does so much. So much. (laughs) So much. She has so many hats. I, you know, we had this wonderful relationship that started when I I had her come to uh, my college and she gave talks. And then I connected her with New Mexico State University and she did a podcast there we and we and then and then we had an exhibition in Mesilla, new mexico with artists from all over new mexico so i got to work with her i i just had heard her on the radio and i was so inspired by her i was coming back from a um show in at colorado state university a solo show i'm a single parent i had driven up and one day i flew out mm. a friend to help me install and they oh. had five people installing We installed for like three days. I'm not sleeping, and then I got to drive back and teach, Mm. you know, and be with my child. So, and so I'm driving in the car, and the Artist Mother podcast is coming on, and I'm like, "These are my people." These, I'm like, like, "Oh my god!" I so like. And I was like, I love this woman. I got to get her to New Mexico and Texas. And she's got to talk to my students who are, you know, dealing with all these things. And so we made it happen anyways. It's just started this wonderful friendship. And we eventually did a lot of the crit groups with her. We decided to open up this course, wearing all the hats as a professional practices course, because, I mean, I love artists and I love teaching, but women identifying artists, who are mothers who are trying to do this artist life and teach and do all the things when the world expects so much of us. I just it's such a passion to be able to help artist mothers kind of navigate the professional world because it's all stuff that I never had one class of professional practices in my undergrad graduate school and and everything I learned, you know, I had to take business classes and marketing classes and they were never geared for artists because I don't know, in the 90s and 2000, they didn't exist. I couldn't find them. So it's just been a self-education of like, I wanted to move into public art and I wanted to move into licensing and I wanted to exhibit my work all over the world, but not live in New York City and pay that rent. And I was a single parent Mm -hmm. and I'm from the poorest county. (laughs) I don't have the contacts that, you know, somebody living in maybe Seattle or anywhere else would. So I was like, how do I make a life for myself? And I just had to figure it out through trial and error and investing and time. And so has Kaylin. Like she started the artist pod artist mother podcast, because she was very isolated as well. And she wanted to connect with other artists. And how do you do that when you're living in the middle of of nowhere, you know, in in terms Mm -hmm. of like art world. And so, which we also break down is a myth in itself. But so we Mm -hmm. we created this class wearing all the hats and it's, it was a 20 week class the first time. And now we've kind of pared it down to 12 weeks and we're going to start it again in January of 2022, our, our third course. We go through everything like we go through, you know, in, how to do inventory, documenting your work, how to do exhibitions, grants, give an artist pitch or, or your elevator pitch, how to write your artist statement, how to take care of your finances, like every single aspect that we could think of that would be helpful. We have created a curriculum for that. So we have this course and then we have accountability partners because we also believe that if you have somebody else If we can connect you too, you know, so now you have artists that are, you're connected with from all over and you guys can be accountable to each other because, you know, nobody has time for inventory in your, in your studio. I don't know anybody who's like, ah, I can't wait for some inventory this week, (laughs) documenting my work or, you know, putting my proposals, like (laughs) We don't have time for it, but it's such a necessary part of what we do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so if we have other people we can support with who are also taking care of their children and working another job and or just starting out, you know, so it's really this place for artists to thrive and really understand all the ins and outs of the professional aspects that we are not taught in schools. So, yeah, that is a huge passion for me, wearing all the hats. And we have a website, wearingallthehats.co.com was taken. So it's dot .co. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can find out more there. But we just, we love to work with artists and we're actually going to start expanding it. So it's not just artist mothers because I have a lot of artist single parents who are, are male artists and my community, and a lot of people I know who don't fit as artist mothers but are taking care of their parents. They have people who are mm-hmm. dependent on them. And so we're, we're trying to expand and, and make more room for kind of everyone who is wearing multiple hats. <laughs> Yeah.
1: We were talking a little bit before we pushed record about (laughs) how artists do so much. Like Mm -hmm. on the one hand, I feel like it's a really difficult career. Like it's hard to actually earn a living as an artist. So we have to be doing many, many things to, you know, support a family, support kids, support, you know, being a caregiver for your parents. Even there's just so, so many hats that I feel like most artists wear Yes, and yeah, I absolutely love. I talk about artist mother podcast here too, and (laughs) love what Kaylin's done. Love what you're doing. So, thank you so
2: much. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's this farce that you can live full time off your work. Like the percentage of people who do that is so tiny, and and the people who do that full time without any other job is like tiny, tiny, tiny. (laughs) Like right. so it's not realistic. It's like saying, I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going gonna, gonna to be Reese Witherspoon, you know, and I'm going to like, it, it's the same thing in the arts, but it's just not mm-hmm. talked about in art school enough. I think to prepare people for what it really takes, the work ethic it takes. You know, I went to yeah. school with so many incredibly talented people blew me out of the water and that's not what they're doing now. They're doing other jobs. And There's, I mean, it's heartbreaking, because it's not an easy life. And so how do you figure out how to make that life work? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, art never leaves you like you can try to get rid of it. Good luck. Like it's always there, you know, Uh. you can stop it for five years. And you're like, you come back, and it's just, it's still right there. So, so I think that trying to manage it and figure out how to make a life that honors that and honors your time and your sanity is every artist's goal, right, for the rest Mm -hmm. of our lives, I think.
1: Yeah. And how have you done that? Like, how do you manage (laughs) all these things?
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh. With a lot of loving support from friends. I mean, Hmm. that's my, that's saved me, I think, because I can call up an artist mother and she can talk me down, (laughs) you know, when I'm like, I tried to do this thing and it didn't work and why? And, it'll never happen again. You know, I think (laughs) sometimes, you know, there's so much rejection we're dealing with rejection all the time and we're working so hard and we're, we're not getting things all the time, which is expected. But I think, but what I mean by that is, I think artists out of most people have a very healthy relationship with rejection just because of the nature of what we do. I mean, we have Mm -hmm. to, or we wouldn't be doing this stuff. But I think Mm -hmm. it's because art is a marathon and it's like, oh, you can be working so hard on something and just see that project not go through or Mm -hmm. um, something that you wanted to do, you know, a relationship with a museum and something was going to happen, but it happens a different way. And that's just not how the work was intended to be. You know, there's just so many different aspects of it. I think having that support group. And then really understanding what self care means to you. Like that has been my biggest kind of aha. So I, I do transcendental meditation and I hike. And those two things, I, hike meaning just I have to be outside, hmm. for exercise, I think that would just equate for exercise. Those two things will keep me sane for when you know, there's so many emails and so many texts and phone calls and deadlines and people asking for things. And I'm like, I just can't have another person asking me for something. Oh, my God. <laughs> so if I go and I do a hike and I come back, I'm like, Oh, life is amazing. You know, <laughs> it resets me so that I can just kind of tackle what I can tackle. And I think the meditation too, it's like starting out in the morning intentionally with this kind of energy mm. and gratitude. There's this great book and all oh, I, I, I don't have it with me, but I can send you the name of it. But it, it's she has these gratitude exercises that you do. And those mm-hmm. are extremely helpful. So if I'm working with maybe somebody who, like in administration, who is not, you know, helping us with our facilities or whatever kind of thing that I'm I'm working against as like contrast, as something that I'm really dealing with as causing stress, I go into this gratitude practice of placing their name and being thankful for them and just thinking about it differently helps me to mm-hmm. move through the stress of. Dealing with difficult people, difficult circumstances, seeing the good in those circumstances, because they're just like, as an educator, I mean, and in the arts, we are not valued. That's just like culturally. And in Mm -hmm. a capitalist society, artists are not really valued. And if you're a woman, you know, and and then the layers that you start to place on it, these are real things that really exist. So how do you deal with a world like that? Well, you have to make Mm. yourself whole and love Give yourself that that time and, and that peace and that energy in different kinds of ways so you can go back out there and just be the best that you can be. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Caitlin's really good at this. She will have really good boundaries about work. And mm-hmm. I have found that I... I'm not in a situation where I can do that so much as a single parent and as the person who has the only job in the household, but there are ways that I've, I've been able to scale it. So there's things that I've worked on in order to kind of create these kinds of boundaries, like trying not to answer people back after five, like, why are you texting me from work at like 10 o'clock? That's not okay. But usually I'd be like, well, here's the thing. And so, you know, it it takes a lot out of me to be like, okay, on Monday, I will text this person back, you know, so just trying to set up those kinds of boundaries, and then just being really cognizant of what makes me feel good. Like, I love baths, Mm -hmm. I love sushi, you know, like, there's just things that if I do that for myself, when I'm having a harder day, or I've accomplished something, that's really helpful. And just celebrating when you do do something that has taken a lot, you know, just take that time to reflect and be like, man, that, you know, that was a lot that you did so <laughs> you know, i think you deserve those shoes you know like somehow mm. you know these kinds of rewards because i think time can just slip away because we're just working so hard so mm-hmm. taking time for yourself is important but that's something i've had to look. i feel like it wasn't until i hit my 40s that i just really dawned on me to to do that and that's helped so much i wish i yeah. knew it sooner <laughs> I know.
1: I feel like I'm, I'm still working on it. And I hear Kaylin talking about removing email from her phone or, you know, setting it up to have like a whole month off at some point. And I'm just like, how, how do you, how does that work? How can, (laughs) it's not possible yet, but it's definitely a goal. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Something to, to work towards. How do I make that happen? But definitely so important. I feel like when you're juggling so many things. I think of it often teaching art and making art go hand in hand, but it's also sort of this navigating two careers at the same time.
2: Yes.
1: And when you're doing that, when you're trying to sort of navigate these dual careers that intersect in some places and totally don't in other places. Yeah. When can you fit in time for yourself, time for your family, time that isn't two careers?
2: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, we're running simultaneously like a full-time business and we're teaching a full-time job. And then we have Mm -hmm. all of our other responsibilities. And I think people don't necessarily understand that. (laughs) Like if you're not in the arts, you don't get what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We are eat, sleep, breathing this stuff all the time.
1: Ooh. Yeah. So hats off to single parents too. (laughs) Just (laughs) managing it without that support is incredible and... Just that added challenge, added layer of like, you don't get time off from parenting. There's no, you know, not that I necessarily do, but I can say, hey, buddy, like, it's your turn.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. too, the thing I do miss is someone being like, oh, yeah, that's a reason. You, you are having a reasonable response to your child saying that. You know, like I think right. a backboard is what I really miss. But, and that's where I think a lot of my friendships come in because they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you did a lot. Or, you know, maybe he shouldn't have said that to you. <laughs> that's not okay. And you did the right thing by doing X, Y, Z. You know, I, I I need to check in to make sure I'm like, am I, I know, I, I, I hate to be so linear with my thinking and being like I this is the right way to do it and I know what's best because mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like there's always room to see things from a different perspective so that is what I do mm-hmm. miss a lot and and yeah. another income that would be great <laughs> like Some yes income I would um, like to handle those bills that would be fantastic uh, <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> so helpful listeners I'm jumping in
0: here because I have an ask of you if you are enjoying the show I would so appreciate your support I'm humbled and grateful for all the interest in this show over the past several
1: months and for the messages I've received letting me know that this podcast has resonated with you it has been so inspiring to hear from you thank you This podcast does take time, effort, and resources to share with you every week. And I want to, I plan to, keep it going and stay focused on highlighting and inspiring artists who teach while also continuing to grow this community and dreaming up additional ways to help you.
0: One way to accomplish this is through direct listener support, your support would really help the show and community grow.
1: So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show.
0: The whole thing will take less than 60 seconds. It's at anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support. You can contribute $1, 5 or $10 per month. If Teaching Artist Podcast is a part of your week and you love what we're doing, please consider visiting anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support or just clicking the link in the show notes and supporting us in any way that you can today.
1: I would also love to get into your artwork and just hear more about your
2: work. Uh, Yeah, well, I'm trained as a painter. My Mm -hmm. dad retired as a printmaking professor, so I grew up with printmaking. So I use a lot of it in my work recently through screen printing and painting and drawing 2d is kind of my absolute love if I walk into a museum I almost just don't even see the 3d stuff I'm like you know I'm that kind of a 2d person but I've moved into yeah. 3d and 4d which is kind of interesting because now that Ooh. I have I kind of start to look at things a little bit differently and I heard this thing that after you have children that a lot of women move into 3d and I just thought that was kind of mm, interesting yeah. what that correlation I've is. seen right? that too oh right like, cause hmm. I was like, I mean, I, I remember walking through huge sculptural installations and people talking about them. I'm like, oh no, that wasn't there in the room. They're like, yeah, that was there. <laughs> like, I didn't even register. But now I'm starting to understand it a lot more. So I've started using a lot of those different concepts in my work. And I use a lot of video and I have this iconography that I use in my painting and my screen printing. And that's either painted on, on the wall or projected on the wall and then projected in video mapping. So I worked with the UTEP electromagnetic lab and they were doing uh, video mapping. And I worked with my friend, Laura Turan uh, who's also interested in doing that. And she helped me a huge amount. So we made these videos where the images of my iconography are projected onto shapes of the images in my iconography, which I'm like, I don't know if this makes sense. (laughs) And I use a lot of light in my work. And also my artwork has light sensitive paint. So the Mm -hmm. layers change based on the light. And then in the installations, the light will also change what the work says. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different layers and then all these different layers start to appear. Hopefully... That's helpful. <laughs> like,
1: yeah, no, that's beautiful. I love hearing about the light. I feel like it's something we probably have to see. I will definitely be yeah. linking to your your website. And do you have videos of kind of like what that looks like
2: and how that um, works? I have stills from it, but I do have yeah. the Mayo, but they're not linked to. But by the time you link it, they will be linked to my website. Cool. I <laughs> Yeah, and then also the
1: like I imagine there's an element of engineering, sort of science, like figuring out how to make this stuff work. Yeah. And you mentioned working with a partner. Is that person also an artist, or is that like?
2: Yeah, she's an artist. She and, works, and she's a friend, and she's one of the people who I flew out to Colorado because I was like, "Oh, oh hello, cool, can you help me make sure that oh. this all runs smooth." <laughs> so luckily, she was there, and there were all these issues because once. I mean, I planned this show at Colorado State University and amnesis for, it was over two years maybe. And, you know, I wasn't physically there. So I had to have the curator take videos and do measurements. And so even with measurements and videos and understanding what kind of projector they had and how we configured it, like we were working on it for a long time. And I would have to, I would set it up in my studio to make sure it would all work the way that we said. And we got there, of course, like all this stuff did not work. So she was like reconfiguring it and i'm like re uh, got all these mylar shapes and putting them up but they uh, had like six people five or six people helping us at any given time so it was fantastic but you know it's stressful because that stuff mm-hmm. is so site specific like you can account for everything and there's always going to be two inches off and there's going to be all these little right. contingencies like you cannot account for even oh, though i was God. trying really really hard and I just didn't have the time to fly up and go through and, you know, and then come back down and it's expensive. And even though they did yeah. uh, give me a research grant and, but I couldn't, you know, to take off that time with a child. So it's always the juggling like, oh, uh... yeah. <laughs> uh. but yeah, it, it's really interesting. because I was working with, you know, these scientists at UTEP and uh, we're trying to figure out, he's trying to do what I'm asking him to do. And then there would be all these things, accidents that would happen when he would do it. And I was like, oh, but I love it. Now there's a shadow. He's like, no, 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 no. You said it should be like this. And I just uh, it was so funny because I kept loving all the problems and he was getting right. frustrated with me. So I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And it can show like four different layers of a shadow. He's like, no, but we just want one. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, that's amazing. So, so it was just kind of funny just the way they work and the way I worked. And I just I'm like, oh, I'm sure he was just like, oh, artists, they don't really care. But (laughs) no, you know, I just didn't know it could do that. If I knew it could do that, I would have said yes. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's a lot of technical stuff that goes with it. And then just the install of my pieces. And because they're site specific, it takes forever to paint a room. Usually the gallery or the, or the university, they'll paint the place before I get there. And then like the first coat of the color, and then I'll paint the images on top. And then usually I'll have assistants helping me with that place to draw, like I'll draw the outline and then they'll fill it in with paint. But I still got to go mm-hmm. over and make sure all the paint, you know. Is okay. So yeah. they're very, like, the right. they, they take a long time to install, but once they're installed, they're amazing. And then what I want them to do is that all the pieces, once the pieces are out, they, they still stand alone, they're still strong enough. So for instance, uh, a couple of pieces in that show in Colorado are now in public installations in different places in New Mexico And they look completely different than they did when they were installed in the installation. But they still work and and they still glow in the dark and they still do all the things just on their own. So that's a really happy place that I've gone to in the work for me and that everything can kind of stand on its own. But put together, Mm -hmm. it kind of creates a whole nother layer.
1: Right. Yeah. And then you also do some licensing and you're working on it. (laughs)
2: Yes, I'm starting on it. I'm trying so hard. I have a coloring book that I've created and COVID hit. And so I was talking with this one major company and it didn't work out, but I haven't really gone back to it because we had to switch over as everybody probably listening knows, you know, we had to switch Mm -hmm. I had to teach studio classes online that had never been taught online before. So I had to redo all my curriculum and Mm -hmm. We were shuffling so much that it took up so much of my time. So now I finally feel like, you know, in the next two months, I'm going to be able to go back to everything in terms of licensing, just because COVID took up. I mean, I was also teaching my son at home and, you know, it just, it, it was a lot. I made a lot of physical pieces, but I just couldn't stand to be on the computer any longer than I had to for mm-hmm. my job. So, and licensing and working with the computer and manipulating images is tons of time in Photoshop. And I just, I didn't have the bandwidth for it mm-hmm. the past couple years, but it's an absolute love. And I, I mean, I have some of my work on the covers of books, which is really nice mm-hmm. things like that, but what I really want to do, I, w- I really want to do textile design and a lot of other stuff. Mm. So I I have the catalogs, I have the lookbooks, I just need to get them to the right people. <laughs> so I've done all the legwork, yeah. but that's, yeah, that's like my, I don't know how to explain it, but I love making art. But that's kind of like my I don't know if I want to say hobby. That's not mm. a good word. But it's like a passion project, I guess. So I'm Yeah, I can't wait to get back into that but everything else has to come first. I have a big show coming up um, at Western state university. So I'm working on that. And as soon as that's up <laughs> and all my curriculums done, cause now we had to move everything to hybrid. Then, <laughs> then I can get into that, you know, that's like the frosting. So I just got to get mm-hmm. all the other stuff done. And that's kind of on the back burner and we're launching another yeah. course. And <laughs>
1: yeah, you have, you know, I, I've heard it put like the big rocks and then oh. the little stones. So you have like, like your big that. rocks are the things that come first. You've got to get these yeah. done, and then you can kind of trickle in everything else.
2: <laughs> yes, I love that. That's what uh. I said. Yeah,
1: but I I guess where I was thinking with that is just a few. Like one is talking about how artists make a living. That mm-hmm. you're making this big, complex, beautiful installation work. And you're showing it and you're, you know, like getting grants around it. You're doing really, I mean, I feel like that's sort of in my long-term goals. (laughs) Like someday I would be there, you know, getting grants for my work and having these big shows like that. But then you're also continuing to make sort of, I'm not sure the right way to put it. Like I was thinking these somewhat smaller sellable one-off pieces Mm -hmm. and then also working towards like licensing deals and the design side of things. Just having so many fires burning <laughs> feels almost like a necessity for artists. Yes, yes <laughs> but so hard.
2: income sources like you have to mm-hmm. have all these different things coming in. I think, you know, I sell some work on Saatchi mm-hmm. and they sell prints of my work because I don't have the time to make the physical prints of my work. So I sell work that way. I sell work to Mm -hmm. my collectors that I'm constantly trying to network and connect with. I make... Work to sell with interior designers who I have relationships with, with corporate places who sell to corporate art who I have not sold yet through, but I, they do ask for a lot of pitches, and I'm like, at some point, someone's going to want one of these pitches because I'm really <laughs> like on these pitches, so I know it'll happen. But um, so I'm working on that. But you know, breaking into each one of these has taken years, and, and mm-hmm. it takes understanding, like how do you make a correct pitch, and how do you? Mm-hmm. Um, And then there's the licensing and the lookbooks and learning all of the software. Like I've been just taking classes and classes and classes with Mm -hmm. Shannon McNabb, who's a textile designer, just trying to understand Mm -hmm. all of this stuff so that I can understand these different industries. Because I think you have to have multiple income streams. And, you know, there's many different reasons. One of which is I never wanted to depend on my work when I was first making it as a source of income, because I really felt like it would change the work. That is my mm-hmm. own perspective, and I think that is a limited perspective. I don't think that everybody needs to have that, but one of the things I, I did was I would every year I would have money set aside in my income taxes, so and I still do so that at the end of the year I would get this check and it would be money that was essentially safe for me and I would put it in my bank account for my artwork and then that went mm-hmm. strictly to supplies and mm-hmm. and buying what I needed. so I didn't have to feel like. I needed to budget that stuff because sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, I really want to work with this paper. Or I really want to work with this thing. And I don't want to have to check my budget and be like, Oh, I can't believe I just spent this on this. I wanted mm-hmm. this kind of free money so that I can play. Like I can just, I don't have to, and I have a sculptor who makes all my work. So I have to be able to pay him. He makes all the substrates. So he makes all the wood circles, mm-hmm. and all the things that I work on. So I, I didn't want them to cut that to come out of grocery money or money for my kiddo and things that he needed. Right. So I did it that way. And then anytime I sell, make money, you know, I put that back in. And so then the work just grows more and more. And then I can buy, you know, I can start to take money out and buy nice things or pay for, I paid for um, something Hmm. that was very expensive this year. And, you know, there's different things that now I'm able to actually buy with my art income that are things that are just feel like luxuries and feel so amazing. So, um, but there's a, I have a careful (laughs) I have a careful relationship with that because I think that the money aspect for artists is it's a slippery slope. And there is amount Mm -hmm. and amount of money I do need to make now to support my bills. So there is money that goes just there. But there's also money that comes out of that where I get to relandscape my backyard and things like that. So I think Mm -hmm. that artists and money and our relationship with money, it's so hard when you're making work and figuring out what that amount of money that you need to make in order to make it a thriving kind of business that you can continue to put money in, even if it won't make anything for like five years or whatever it is, you know, so yeah, multiple income streams. And then having I take a lot of money classes, I read a lot of books about money and redefining my relationship Mm. with money, because when you grow up with a scarcity of money, it's very hard to sometimes to rationalize, well, $400 on paints. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So I think that I think understanding that situation and just having a different relationship with it has been very, very helpful to becoming more in an ab- abundance mindset. So.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's two layers to that mindset shift, too. There's, you know, spending so much money because art supplies are not cheap. <laughs> but then also asking for, you know, if you're gonna sell something or you're presenting a talk or you know whatever it is that you're doing putting i have so much trouble with pricing because a lot of times the mindset that i'm trying to kind of get out of is like well i couldn't afford it
2: right and it's like yeah
1: but i'm not my customer
2: (laughs) right yes and i've gone to that point too i'm like i would i'd never be able to buy this stuff (laughs) right but but yeah there's so much to that and, and thinking about yeah. it and thinking about your work and just the minimum is just thinking about how much time, energy you put in and paying yourself minimum wage. It's like that right. thing costs so much. And then if you throw in the student loans and all that other good stuff, oh. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, we do a whole week on pricing and, and because there's so many layers to it and how you continue to mark up your prices and what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. and. And yeah, that emotional aspect to it. Yeah,
1: definitely. It's so tricky. Yeah. And it's on on my list to make time to take the course.
2: Yay! (laughs) At some point,
1: I will be there. (laughs) Yeah, it's been so good just hearing more about How you're sort of managing all of these things and the amazing work that you're making, I will link to all of it. I also like to ask a couple of, I think of them as get to know you questions, even though we've already kind of gotten to know you. So big, broad question. What are you curious about?
2: Oh, I am so curious about physics. I'm just always reading about it and listening on podcasts about it. And it's just so hard for me to wrap my head around, but I'm very interested and I have a lot of great book recommendations, but I I have to read them over and over again because Hmm. I don't understand them, (laughs) but I'm very interested in physics and quantum mechanics and, you know, Hmm. things that are just so incredibly interesting to me. I'm I'm just so interested Hmm. in how our world works and how we make meaning and, So physics kind of go along with with that. Yeah. Amazing.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I love that you, you know, for the project you were talking about, that you got to work with a scientist who was, (laughs) (laughs) it's an interesting, like hearing that relationship too, and just the mindset they have versus sort of an artist mindset where- it's all just experimentation and being open to like, oh, what, what happened now? Let's go with that. Yeah. But being able to incorporate that into your work and have help from people who maybe do understand it more. Yes. I feel like that must be incredible.
2: Yes. I'm looking forward to collaboration more with, with scientists. Yeah. I just love how people think differently. I just love it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, my mom used to teach science and math at the Mm -hmm. high school level, and would talk about how sometimes students would have sort of a breakthrough, because they didn't know the rules, because they were kind of like thinking Mm -hmm. outside of the box, being able to come up with these sort of discoveries, because you're not already sort of narrow in your thinking.
2: Yeah, I feel
1: like that's where artists come in,
2: too. Yes. I You know, and have you noticed that too with teaching art? I always felt like my non-majors, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> they had such an interesting perspective and just openness in different kinds of ways that I just, I loved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I find that with, you know, with elementary, they're kind of mm-hmm. all there. Yeah. It's amazing what they come up with. I'm always inspired looking to them for inspiration and the color I don't know, for me, colors a huge thing. So yes. the ways they put colors together, the ways they mix colors is just incredible.
2: Yes, I had my, my son in my studio all the time. I was like, what do you think about this stuff? I copied <laughs> a whole lot of his stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm doing that now with my, my daughter just got the little, I don't know what their perler beads, I think is what they're called the little like, you know, you carefully line up all these little plastic beads and then iron them to stick yes. them together. Oh, we
2: were super into those in my oh, house. Yes, my son. We made a million He's loving presents. it. They are great because they take up a lot of time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: But I love it. Like the combination, she's, you know, gets a circle and I expect her to just make sort of like a target or something. But she's got these like crazy sort of patterns and shapes going on inside of it and it's like half of it is brown and then it's like all these bright colors on one side. I'm just, oh, how, what is yes. going, what is, you're a brilliant artist.
2: <laughs> yes. She's a brilliant mom. That's what.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I it just, it's so amazing. The other sort of just fun get to know you question that I always like to throw out there is what is your favorite food? your go-to um, food
2: my favorite go-to food well this is gonna sound super lame but macaroni and cheese from lubies in the 90s was like my jam like that was the best but i have gluten and dairy allergies so i can't eat oh macaroni and cheese. but there's this microwavable macaroni and cheese and it sounds bad but it's gluten-free dairy-free by annie's i think it's the company's oh. annie's and it's like mm-hmm. 2000 calories. It's something not good for you. But like every now and then I'll be like, Ah, oh, yeah, I'm going to have my microwave macaroni and cheese that is not macaroni or cheese. <laughs> so that's my I decadent little pleasure. Otherwise, it's yeah. a really nice salad. <laughs>
1: but- yeah, I, those decadent foods, though, like it, I feel like it has to be, you know, a ridiculous amount of calories for it really yes. to be there good stuff (laughs)
2: what is in it but it is really good Uh,
1: yeah (laughs) yeah we love just the regular like annie's mac and cheese but that's our jam over here too
2: (laughs) yeah i mean what how can you go wrong with mac and cheese you can add green chili Uh, to it you can do so so much stuff with it um mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, when I get really ambitious I'll make homemade mac and cheese. Oh, but wow. I don't think that's happened for a few years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but homemade mac and cheese, that's a whole nother level. That's amazing. It's so good. And
1: then, is there is there anything we kind of missed? Anything I should have asked but didn't get to?
2: I think we touched. We talked about a lot. I guess my biggest wish is that anyone who is listening, who maybe is not able to give a lot of time to their own art practice, that maybe they use that as a form of self care, and maybe just start to add another hour a week of going Mm -hmm. to the studio. Because I mean, that's to me, that's also self care is just being in that room with all the things and no expectation and not having to get it done. Just we need more artists in the world. We need more people thinking that way. We need mm-hmm. more happy people. I just wish for everyone to get to make art today. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yes. my, my hope is, is every day we get to make just something for us or mm-hmm. I don't know, just makes the world a better place, I think.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I know for me, it's definitely part of self-care. Yes. It's very therapeutic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it Um, takes the world, too. I don't know. I don't have mm -hmm. the statistics yet, but I'm working on it.
1: Yeah. Well, we kept seeing... I know I kept seeing the sort of memes about art. Like, art is essential when we're talking about essential jobs and essential workers. And meanwhile, all the art funding is being thrashed. Yes. (laughs) And saying, you know, how many songs have you listened to during this Mm -hmm. quarantine time? How many movies have you watched? Like, how many artworks have you been looking at on the computer? Art is essential. It's getting us through this.
2: It's essential. It's it's innovation. mm -hmm. It's the only way we're going to get through anything. Yeah. Creativity. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. 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 I just did a project with fourth graders where we listen to the Linda Lindas. They're this amazing girl band in Los Angeles that, you know, they're actually still kids right now. They have a song called Missing You that they wrote during quarantine. That's just like, I miss my friends. Like, this is hard sort of message. But we listen to that and then just use art to get out any feelings that we have. Oh, oh, And just talking with kids about that. Yeah. Like that art can be Like I ask them, I try to be very open-ended and I'm like, you know, what were they talking about in the song? Like, why do you think they would talk about something that doesn't make them feel so good? And their responses are amazing. They're just like, well, art can help you feel better. Art can help other people feel better and feel like less alone. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Art can help you get those feelings out. Art can like, it's a way to talk about it with the world. I'm just yeah. like, you guys
2: are amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing because you're yeah. on the front lines, even if they never take another art course again. I mean, that's such a gift to give people. Yeah, that's, I love that. Yeah, so those,
1: yeah those conversations are so incredible. Oh, so last couple things. Is there anyone you would want to kind of give a shout out to or thank? Gosh, you know, there are literally,
2: like when I was on <laughs> so many. podcast, she was like, uh I was like reading off a paragraph. <laughs> I mean there's just so many people. I will not torture uh your listeners, but there you know I had an art teacher, Jacqueline St. Aubin, and she was just the most incredible. Uh, I had her in, in undergrad and in, in graduate school and um the reason why she I, she just knew everything about painting and art and mm. technical everything. She knew everything, but the way she handled critiques and the way she handled helping people to understand how to get to their strengths and how to see areas that were not working, she just modeled so much love and so much mm. compassion and just, I mean, I feel like I just learned so much from her about how to be a better human, number one, but like, yeah. how, how do you do that for somebody? How do you bring into their awareness, something and help them. And mm-hmm. she just always has so many words that like nuggets, so many great things. I remember teaching this class and being super frustrated with, you know, a student and then that student finally got this thing. And she said, you know, people aren't ready to hear it until they're ready, you know, mm-hmm. little things like that. She just would reconstruct how I would approach things. Mm-hmm. She just came from it with so much compassion. So Mm. She's an incredible artist, Jacqueline St. Aubin. She also wrote a drawing book that I use still when I teach. It's amazing. Yeah. So she's who I'd give a shout out to for setting me on that path and showing me that, you know, a way to help people help artists with love. Amazing. Yeah. That sounds like
1: a big influence in the mindset shift that we were talking about earlier.
2: She was it. She was doing compassion. Yeah. And you didn't even notice mm. she was doing it. She's so good. Ah. So good. <laughs> I love it. Last
1: thing, where can listeners connect with you online?
2: Well, just my name is S-T-O-W-E is the last name. Not too many people mm-hmm. are named Isadora. So I'm very easy to find. <laughs> 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 I'm named after my grandfather. But so yeah, Isadora Stowe.com, And I'm on all the social media, all the things just with my name. 'cause nobody has it. So I got really yes. lucky with that. <laughs> and yeah, I would love for any teachers or anyone to reach out with any questions they have. I love this was just so pleasurable getting to talk to you and talk about teaching and art and Oh, just loved it thank you yes thank you so much for artists (laughs) teachers thank
1: you it was I feel like so helpful and just yeah wonderful to talk with you too and I will link to you and everyone go check out Isadora's work I know hearing about it like I need the visuals so (laughs) go look at look at the visuals (laughs) thank you Isadora
2: thank you
0: Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or TeachingArtistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of Teaching Artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference.
2: Thank you.